As Mark tells the story, Jesus and his disciples are coming out of the temple, the grand temple, and one of them says, Lord, look at it. Look at these huge stones, this huge building. It's it's amazing, isn't it? And apparently Jesus is not impressed. He says, not one of these stones is going to be left upon another. And the longer he talks, the more he sounds like an AM radio preacher and his eyes are bulging out about the end of the world and how the sun's going to be darkened and the moon extinguished. I'm not sure we would want to ask Jesus, what does he think about our building? This one. I don't know if you do this, but when we have friends in town, we will sometimes take them on an informal architectural tour, you know, at least driving by, if not going in, the, the Kaufman Center. It's just breathtaking. And the Nelson Atkins and this place. You may not know it, but there is an organization formed some years ago called Friends of Sacred Spaces. You can go on their website. They have tours of different churches in town, and ours is on the list. It's not really surprising, but you may not know that groups come and take tours here. And just this week, one of our own docents, Marie McGinty, gave me a a brief abbreviated tour of our building. And it is, well, it's magnificent. But I'm not sure I would take Jesus on the tour. You know, you you take him to Grace and Holy Trinity downtown. You say, well, what do you think, Lord? And he talks about how it's all going to come crashing down and the women better not hope they're pregnant. And... You know, it's just, wow, sorry we asked. This, in Mark's gospel, is Jesus' farewell address. In the gospel of John, when Jesus says goodbye at the end of his ministry, it's over a a candlelit table with a glass of wine, and he says, I'm going to send the Spirit to comfort you. That's how friends say goodbye. But no, in this gospel, it's, well, all hell's going to break loose. And there's going to be war and famine and, well, you heard it, let the reader understand. Good luck, right? What is key to understanding this passage, at least one of the keys, is time gap. Not the time gap between then and the end of the world, or even the time gap between now and the end of the world, although that's how a lot of people read it, but the time gap between this event and Mark's writing it down. Forty years have passed since Jesus and the disciples are coming out of the temple by the time Mark writes his gospel. And at that point, the temple has already been destroyed. Mark's not predicting the future. It's more like he's watching the news. They've they've seen what's happened and they're trying to make sense of it. And the gospel, as they open up the gospel of Mark, it, it dawns on them. The destruction of the temple. Three years earlier, in the year 67, the Jews, always suffering under the Rome and their occupation, they revolted. They stood up. They said, we're not going to take it anymore. Unfair taxes. And Rome, well, it's a mighty army, and they just squished them. And they destroyed the temple. When Mark writes his gospel, it's not about a future way out there. They only have to pull the curtain back and look outside. He says, let the reader understand. When you see the emperor setting up his bust, his likeness in the temple, the holy place, making himself out to be God, you should know it's the end. Not the end of the world. It's the end of a world, the world as we've known it. That's why I've always been reminded 
when I hear stories and passages like this about my favorite novel, and I'm pretty sure it's my favorite. At a thousand pages, I've read it three times. Ken Follett's The Pillars of the Earth. It's just magnificent. I won't ruin it for you. Well, I'm going to ruin part of it, but that's okay because that's what Mark does. He sort of ruins it. He tells us how it ends, and it's not a mystery anyway. It's the story of a 12th century stonemason who longs to build great cathedrals to the glory of God. But he's not the only character. There's Philip, the monk, who's head of the abbey, and, and then there's the king, and he is dastardly. He is just evil incarnate. And these two powers are always going at each other. The king, all for himself, Philip trying to live for the glory of God, and it goes back and forth. And it's like reading the Washington Post. It's like, you know, watching the news. And in the end, after a thousand pages, the king is finally publicly humiliated and put on trial, and good wins. And the last line, the last line, and the monk thought to himself, the world will never be quite the same. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get to the end of a novel like that, thousand pages or not, I like to close the book and close my eyes and just let it soak in that good triumphs. And then there's that little word. Did you hear it? The world will never quite be the same. There's the catch. There's a day of justice coming, but it's not yet. And we know this, we are painfully aware. I mean, in Holy Week, we will live it again. Most of us live with one foot in Good Friday, a day of death, and one foot on Easter Sunday, a day of resurrection. We really live in Holy Saturday, that day in between. And we feel the tug of both good, but also evil. And the day comes when there's justice. Some well-meaning Christians over the years have taken this passage and the book of Revelation and Daniel and they stitch together a fancy scheme and, and they say things like, look, we don't need to care about this earth and buildings like this. It's all going to come crumbling down. We're all going to be sitting on clouds with little harps. So look, just rape the rainforest and, and drill for oil anywhere you want because, well, you want cheaper gas. It's all going to come crumbling down anyway. And so they've con con kind of concocted this scheme, and so they say, well, you don't need to care about the earth. But I don't think that's true. I think in this passage, Jesus stresses, Mark in his gospel stresses this notion of the difference we make. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book. Probably 10 years ago, Alan Weisman wrote a little book called The World Without Us. It's not sci-fi, but with good science, they imagine what would happen to the earth if humans were not here. Well, if you've got neighbors that don't mow, you know the answer, right? It grows up, it just takes over. Well, that's what they surmise. They say New York City would be underwater within a couple of days. Every single day, 13 million gallons of water are pumped out from under the city. That would fill up immediately in, into the tunnels and come up. And you know those little bitty plants that come up in the cracks of your sidewalk and in your driveway? Some of them would become trees and the concrete would give way. Houses, the houses we live in, 50 to 100 years, they would hardly stand. Animals would come back, whole forests in a couple hundred years. The point is, we make 
a difference. What we do here makes a difference on this planet. Remember that big apocalypse revelation? It doesn't describe us dying and going to heaven. It describes New Jerusalem coming down to earth. This place restored. And let me be really clear. You don't have to decide between beauty and justice. Both are nicknames for God. Both are the very nature of God. It's not that Jesus predicts that places like this are going to crumble and it doesn't really matter. It's more important is what happens in these places and when we leave these places. So I've been toying with it. What would it be like to invite Jesus to come to our church? I picture him on a Sunday. He comes and he sits in a pew, careful not to sit in any of your places. He knows about that. And he listens to the prelude and that oboe and organ. And he watches as we greet one another and give hugs. Hey, it's good to see you. And as we stand to sing, we sing hymns of praise. We come to the offering and maybe somebody gets up and talks about that woman in Nicaragua that a bunch of people met a couple of weeks ago. The woman with 10 kids whose husband left them and now she walks miles to fetch water. And after the offering, they sing the doxology, and Jesus stands. He listens to our prayers, to our sermons. And, of course, he watches us come to eat this meal. And after church, he goes in the parlor with us. I mean, Jesus likes cookies. I don't know. Oatmeal, raisin, I don't know. Cup of coffee, visits with folks. And then finally, we get up the nerve to ask him. So, what do you think, Lord? It's beautiful, isn't it? And he smiles because he knows it's beautiful. But then he surprises us with a question of his own. He says, what do you think that woman in Nicaragua is doing right now? 